Welcome to the August edition of The Compliance Life. This month, I visit with Scott Garland, who's had a most interesting non-traditional compliance and ethics career, but I thought it would be very instructive if we had him on. So, this month on The Compliance Life, Scott Garland. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In episode two, Garland moves to the Department of Justice. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with Audrey Harris on The Compliance Life. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox with another edition on The Compliance Life. This month, I'm visiting with Scott Garland. Scott, first of all, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Scott, in this episode, uh, you moved to the Department of Justice. Could you tell us, in episode one, rather, you told us about your interest in white-collar defense and then working as a prosecutor for a four-month second, I believe you said, to Norfolk County prosecutor. What led you to the Department of Justice? I knew that I wanted to do some federal work because it had been the bulk of the work I had done at my law firms. I interviewed all over the country for an assistant U.S. attorney job, including at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. I was roundly turned down everywhere that I applied, but I still wanted to do the work. And I thought that the knack that I had for understanding technology and computers and science might be helpful in some way. There was a computer crime and intellectual property section in Washington, D.C. at Maine Justice, and they hired me at the end of two years at Foley OAG. And it was one of the greatest benefits I've had in my entire professional life. What was your initial starting position at the Department of Justice in the Boston office? In the Boston office or in D.C.? Did you begin in D.C.? Yeah, so I began in D.C. Okay. And I was a trial counsel there and then moved into senior counsel. And then after about five years in D.C., I moved into the Boston U.S. Attorney's Office to do cybercrime work because I had been working with the Boston office quite a bit before that. In D.C., were you at Maine Justice? Were you in the Washington, D.C. office of the U.S. Attorney? I was at the Maine Justice office, not at the U.S. Attorney's office in D.C. So I was at one of the outbuildings there at the Computer Crime Intellectual Property section. And then I would work with various U.S. Attorney's offices around the country like Salt Lake City, Portland, Oregon, Richmond, Virginia, Detroit, and and Boston as well. Could you detail some of your work in criminal investigations and trials, policy analysis, and even drafting manuals? Yeah, I worked in a few different areas when I was in D.C. I did a lot of investigations into intellectual property, a lot of counterfeit clothing, counterfeit purses, trade secret theft at various technology companies, and I did those around the country. The policy analysis that I did really focused on this burgeoning problem at the beginning of the 2000s of peer-to-peer file sharing 
and people streaming content online or sharing it online without the copyright owner's control or permission. So there are a lot of legislative proposals, both for statutes to deal with that, how to do the investigations, and what to do under the sentencing guidelines. And I worked on those as well. And then finally, we had a manual at D.C. for the entire country on how to investigate and prosecute intellectual property crimes. I was asked to be the chief editor of that. And so in 2006, I think it was, we published a whole new manual that really systematized the knowledge that the department had. And we put it out to the public, by the way. It was available publicly over the DOJ website, so they could read it as well. During your time at Maine Justice in the investigative component of your work there, did you have the opportunity to work with the FBI? Oh, a lot with the FBI. The first investigation that I ever worked on or ever wrote search warrants for was a three-state takedown of 17 different locations with, I think, 17 different search warrants that not only the FBI, but also customs enforcement as well. Could you say a few words? I'm not sure our listeners really understand how someone at the U.S. Attorney's Office or at Maine Justice works with the FBI. What's the FBI's role and the type of cases you are working on then? And how do you interact with the FBI team going forward? There are a couple of ways that you interact with the FBI. In some investigations, the FBI has done its investigation without the involvement of the prosecutor through means that didn't require court support, like court orders or subpoenas or search warrants. They've done interviews, they've gathered evidence, and they've observed things, and they come to you and they present you an investigative package. And then you either say, yes, I'm going to prosecute that, or maybe I'll prosecute that, but you would need to take these steps first. Or, I'm sorry, that's just not something that we can prosecute. Most of the investigations that I worked on had more of a collaborative relationship, though, where the FBI comes to you early on and says, this is what we're seeing. Do you think this is viable and that there's something we should look into? And then if you're interested and you think that there's something there, you work on an investigative plan together. You try to get them the court orders, subpoenas, and search warrants that they need to do the investigation. You hopefully contribute some ideas as well about where to get more information. And then eventually you start making charging decisions after that and then bring it to court. In your time at Maine Justice, did you have your first experience in the ethics realm with the Department of Justice? Yes, I did. At some point, I was asked to be the ethics advisor for the computer crime intellectual property section. And I want to draw a distinction here. The ethics advisor at Maine Justice or at a U.S. attorney's office is the person who is making sure that DOJ regulations are being followed. So, for example, are employees accepting the gifts that are larger than the monetary limit that they're allowed to accept? Are they following the DOJ regulations about avoiding an appearance of impropriety? That's different from a role that I had later on, which was making sure that the lawyers followed professional rules of the legal profession, of legal ethics. But I was the ethics advisor for a few years when I was at CSEPS, and that was really my first toe dipped into the waters of compliance and ethics. So you hinted at moving to Boston and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. What took you up to Boston, and what did you do when you initially got there? 
I moved up to Boston because of a few things. One is that I had done a number of investigations with the U.S. Attorney's Office up in Boston that were very successful, and I had a lot of fun. It was also nice to come back to where I had gone to college. Some family had moved out to Boston as well, so that was nice. And in addition, when you're working in Maine Justice and you're doing prosecution, you're really going to courthouses around the country. And the travel is fun and exciting. You get to meet a lot of different people, but you never necessarily feel like you're at home in a courthouse. And I really wanted to feel like I was at home in a courthouse, knowing the judges, knowing the judges' clerks, knowing the defense counsel, knowing the investigators, and developing a closer relationship with them. That's what took me up there. And what did you do in your initial phase of working in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston? I was in the cybercrime unit, so I was really doing the same sort of cases I had done in D.C., but all out of Boston, all focusing on the Boston office. Internet fraud, cyber intrusions into generally companies' computer systems. Some identity theft as well. That's when I became the identity theft coordinator. And then I worked on some other cases as well. Sometimes cases involving public corruption, access of officials to records that maybe they shouldn't have, have accessed. And it was my computer skills that, was able, that were able to show whether they had the access or not and how they accomplished it. So we're somewhere in your uh, still early part of your career, perhaps moving towards the mid part. I'd like to actually now step back and ask, were, are you or were you at that point in your career able to use some of the underpinnings and sort of intellectual frameworks you learned both as an economist at MIT and in the law school at the University of Michigan, or was it a different intellectual experience for you? I think it was somewhat of a similar experience in that I would walk into my investigations doing what I said before that economists do, and I think that good lawyers do too, which is assuming that I know nothing and that I shouldn't make assumptions. I don't want to make assumptions about whether the person that we're investigating is guilty or not, or that the person's conduct was illegal or not. What I want to do is figure out what's the information that I'm going to get that will allow me to draw those conclusions. And let's suspend our beliefs about whether somebody is guilty or not until we've drawn in all of that, that data. And let's not just follow data that we think will confirm what we believe, but let's try to find other things that might disconfirm what we think we believe. So we have the best understanding of the situation before we decide whether to charge or not. You spoke about being in the cyber crime unit and the national security unit. Could you explain the responsibilities of those units from the prosecutorial perspective? Yes, the cyber crime unit really dealt with the intellectual property theft that we talked about before and the sort of cyber crime issues that we discussed before. The national security unit was different in that a lot of the cyber work that I did in the cybercrime unit transferred over because now I was starting to look at whether people had broken into computers in order to take, say, classified information or information of strategic value to the United States and then bring it to another country for the benefit of the other country. So I continued doing a lot of the cybercrime investigation there. But I also started doing investigations into export controls and into violation of economic sanctions, 
misuse of classified information, also domestic and international terrorism and hate crimes as well. So I've always wondered not so much what's the role of the U.S. attorney, but does the U.S. attorney set a tone for the office or are the full-time professionals like yourself who are there, it really doesn't matter who the U.S. attorney is, you've got a job to do and you perform that. And how do maybe you interact with a U.S. attorney who is a political appointee? It's a great question. The U.S. attorneys that I worked with ranged from one who was a political appointee who had not been in the U.S. attorney's office before. And then the next, I think, three U.S. attorneys or four U.S. attorneys that I dealt with had been in the office as well. So they had prior federal experience. I have to say that there's a mix of the effect that the person has. The person who's U.S. attorney has definite effects on a lot of policy issues and especially issues at the margin about whether you're going to prosecute something, whether you need more evidence or not, and also how risk adverse they are or how risk tolerant they are. Are they willing to investigate a case and then bring a case that's righteous, even if there might be some uncertainty in the present law? And understanding that a court or a trial court or an appellate court might rule against us. But the work of the department goes on regardless of who the U.S. attorney is. And frankly, and despite who the president is, you're always going to be looking into cybercrime into terrorism, into securities fraud, because that's what the crime is still there. It's still important. And the government wants to protect its citizens. So in the different other types of work, rather, you engaged in there, you've listed identity theft coordinator, committee on dealing with cooperating witnesses and grand jury supervisors. I was wondering if you could just say a few words about the administrative role you had in those areas. Yes. So within a U.S. attorney's office, there are generally people who have a non-supervisory role in matters, but are sought to concentrate in certain areas so that if other AUSAs have questions about them, like identity theft, like dealing with cooperating witnesses, like the grand jury, they can come to you for answers. And if you don't have answers, you'll try to figure out the answers for them. So I think one of the things that led to my getting into the ethics role at the U.S. Attorney's Office was the fact that I was willing to take those positions on. I was interested in trying to make life easier for the AUSAs. So, for example, when I found that AUSAs were doing a certain type of thing over and over again, but didn't have a model, a template for doing that, I would try to generate that model or template. I also tried to streamline procedures to make them easier for the court and for the AUSAs and for the investigators as well. So as an identity theft coordinator, I did a lot of intake decisions or certainly intake talking with agents about situations. With the Committee on Dealing with Cooperating Witnesses, I was dealing with a bunch of AUSAs on issues of how to deal with that properly and what sort of credit cooperating witnesses should get when they are in, the, in court and being sentenced. And then the same sort of thing with grand jury. A lot of grand juries are very fraud areas sometimes because there are secrecy obligations. You really want to protect grand jury secrecy and make sure that you're doing things correctly in there so you're fair to the defendant and for witnesses as well. 
So those are the sorts of things. Scott, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but our hope our listeners will join us again next time where we discuss your move into the professional responsibility officer role. Thanks again. I look forward to continuing this conversation. I do as well. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.